morning, folks. It's time for Democratic Perspective, brought to you by the Verde Valley Independent Democrats, a weekly talk show about the crucial political issues facing the Verde Valley, Sedona, Northern Arizona, and the nation at large. Join us for a stimulating, thought-provoking discussion. You'll get the facts as we focus on the challenges facing everyone. Good morning, folks. Steve Williamson here. Little uh, chaos this morning when the microphones didn't work, but we got everything working now. Um, and my iPad didn't, so all my notes <laughs> were dead. But other than that, we're doing just fine. We have, um, gosh, I was going to take a look at our, in the past, we've done, oh, maybe four shows on the uh, Koch brothers and um, the apparatus that they develop to influence all kinds of different areas of society. And that's what we'll be talking about with the authors of um, the, of, of, an, of a new book. Um, so, Isaac and Ralph, are you there? Are they there? Uh, I'm not hearing them. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, there you are. Okay. All right. Good morning. Good morning. Uh, why don't you introduce yourself? Tell us about a little bit about your book because it has a different focus and it's about um, we we did have some people from Un uh, our campuses on, and there is of course large penetrations of the university by the Koch brothers here in Arizona, both U of A, right, Karen, and and Arizona State. Yeah. So they have established all these sort of programs and entrepreneurship and they've gotten more they're pouring some more money in for uh kind of indirectly trying to influence the university so why don't you introduce yourselves and are you guys on separate sides of the country yes yeah okay isaac why don't you introduce yourself yes great my name is isaac camola i'm coming from you from west hartford connecticut um where it's probably a little bit chillier in Connecticut yeah. than it is in Arizona. Yes, I did. Um, yep. And and what's the name of the book, Isaac? The book is called Free Speech and Coke Money, uh, Manufacturing a Campus Culture War. Okay. Um, and it examines the kind of the Coke apparatus and using the example of their influence on college cam- campuses in general, but also their kind of the way that they fomented this um, – kind of crazy attacks on um, on free speech and this kind of culture war la- language. It was written before the critical race theory stuff, but I mm-hmm. think it's the same kind of stuff that we're looking at, the ways that student groups kind of man and, and other groups target universities to manufacture a certain type of outrage. Um, so, Ralph, why don't you introduce yourself? Do you, you teach too? Uh, no, I'm, I'm, I work sort of in parallel to the academy. Um, I, I was one of the co-founders of On Coke My Campus. Uh, I was the research director. So I just got interested. I uh, actually dropped out of grad school in order to research the Coke Network's effect in higher ed. Um, but I was at Florida State University. I was, I'm a mathematician by training. Yeah, and so the, the Coke Brothers has been, been growing for for decades. And when back in the 60s when I was in school and – um, I fought in both the civil rights movements, free speech movements. Free speech is very important to me, and uh, the against the Vietnam War, um, and we faced a whole lot of suppression uh, by campuses in Oklahoma, where I'm from. 
we tried to form a liberal political organization, and uh, we um, tried to tuck in under something called the Americans for Democratic Action, which I don't think even exists. But we thought it was anti-communist, and at least that they would uh, the the campus authorities would let us have an organization like that, and they refused. That was too radical for them. So then we formed a group called the Friday Afternoon Tea and Glee Society where we did what we wanted to do and invited speakers and stuff. But uh, when I was growing up, when I was in college, maybe on the West Coast and New York where I later lived, there was a lot of uh, freedom of speech and um, academic freedom, certainly off in the boonies and then in the flyover country, as they call it now, uh, there wasn't. So, but we did already have a libertarian movement. Although, when we first started talking to libertarians when I was young, they weren't the kind of corporate libertarians that the Koch brothers have created, I don't think. Um, they were coming from uh, Ian Rand's book and uh, a lot of ideas, and they were, were all very young. And uh, so we all had very, very intense opinions. But it wasn't this kind of corporate machine. So it seems odd to me, just as an individual, and, and maybe you guys can, can speak to it, that uh, – the libertarian movement, what I saw, which was extremely individualistic, in fact, destructively individualistic, is then powered by this powerful, half-hidden Koch brothers political machine. Uh, Ralph, you want to start uh, and then go to Isaac? Yeah, sure. Thanks, Stephen. Um, I think that's I think that's dead on, and really, the the trick at play is um, for for donors. Uh, like Coke and those in the Coke network, they want to kind of do a little bit of bait and switch. You know, they essentially, their apparatus is trying to um, conflate individual liberty with corporate liberties and to, you know, uh, build a sort of uh, a, a large popular movement for individual liberty that they can then convert into political change um, that affects uh, corporate liberty, in a sense. And you know, I think earlier when, when you were mentioning the indirect nature of that, I, I think that's really key um, because in order to do that, there there has to be a little bit of like covert activity. They can't be direct. And early on, you know, in, in the in 1970s, there's some documents uh, written by Charles Koch um, and developed by the, the folks, officials of the Koch Foundation um, that specifically say, you know, essentially um, political uh, political donations and direct political activity isn't as effective as we want it to be. And neither is just funding a think tank in isolation or just funding a, a free market scholar in isolation. So what they put together was a plan to integrate those activities, that philanthropy, and essentially create a very large, coherent um, and efficient political machine. And so we sort of took them at their word. We took that strategy, which is called the structure of social change. It's written by one of Charles Cook's right-hand men, uh, Richard Fink. And we, we basically used that as the lens to examine this larger sort of culture war or manufactured free speech crisis that we're seeing. Um, and essentially, you know, we're able to stand way back and look at the political change that they were that they were able to drum up um, with using this sort of free speech crisis. But 
but also to what you were speaking on just briefly, that, you know, the free speech movement in the 60s and 70s and the libertarian movement, I mean, these are things that, that you know, the Coke torch um, wants to capture and wants to recreate. And so it's, no, it's, it's not a, a coincidence that they're trying to sort of harken back to this larger, more organic free speech movement that was very powerful. Um, they essentially want a redo of that, but uh, one that favors corporate interests instead. Yeah, I noticed here in Arizona they've funded institutes at all three universities with – I know the one at ASU is talking about the Center for Economic Leadership and the one at, uh, at U of A has some similar name. They all sound very, you know, very nice and aspirational and things we should all agree with until you look at you know, who's funding them and what they're actually doing. But they all talk about speech and they all talk about you know, uh, leadership. They all talk that the idea we're training leaders. Yeah, we're we're not brainwashing people. <laughs> yeah. Yes, yeah. The, the Center for the Study of Economic Liberty and the Center for the Philosophy of Freedom. These are all really innocuous sounding things, um, but when you look at the philosophy that they're actually trying to inject and the policy they're trying to affect, um, it's it's very different from what you might expect. For those of us who are not in the academia, who've been in. Um, um, liberal progressive movements all our lives and our lives are now pretty damn long um, uh, we see very disturbing reports from the university of left and liberal shutting down free speech for protesting against speakers who are bad guys but shutting down free speech in campus so I think that outside of the academic world um Progressives are concerned about some of the stuff going on on campuses. So, uh, what is your what is your answer to that? We see these uh, attempts to shut down conservative speakers. Um, for us, you know, protesting them is one thing, and if vigorously protesting them is fine, and engaging them in debate in their in their presentations is fine, but actually shutting down their appearances crosses the kind of line, and, and this line has existed forever because uh, back in the 60s, I was a part of something called the New Free University in New York City, and uh, one of the professors invited this really nasty guy, Herman Kahn, who believed that nuclear war was not so bad, to, to our little tiny campus in Greenwich Village, our little tiny room, really, in Greenwich Village, and there was a huge debate. Uh, among the faculty and the students about whether to invite him or not because he represented a huge uh, Hudson Institute still exists a huge power it had all the money and the stuff in the world and we were these poor guys and the and there we were inviting him to come and speak and so there was a big debate between the free speech side which I was on which was let's let's argue with him I'm you know there's, there's his stuff is nonsensical so let's argue with him and those who said we can't allow him to speak those who said we can't allow him to speak one so I don't think these these debates are are, are brand new but t- tell us a little bit about so there are issues on campus and then you have the Koch brothers coming in and pouring money into a campaign to make everything look much worse than it actually is because that will further their goals of getting control and, and influence on campuses. Uh, Isaac, maybe you should go on this one. Sure, yeah. I mean, I think a great example that gets at exactly this problematic 
is the case of Charles Murray at, at Middlebury, um, which is one of the most prominent kind of campus free speech issues um, from 2017. And basically the story that generally gets told is Charles Murray is was invited to Middlebury. He got up to speak. He got sh- shouted down. That was outrageous. He And then on his way out, he got pushed. And this is indicative of how intolerant students are, and this was an, an outrage, right? And I think that the issue of free speech on campus is always very tricky, right? I think that it's it's a very, very tricky question. And if you look at the the Charles Murray um, uh, case just a, a little bit more closely, you see it's actually just a lot more com- more complicated. So students at Middlebury, uh, students of color and Jewish students in particular, have been facing considerable harassment and 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 racial um, uh, epithets, and there was a there was a lot of discontent among the students. Um, and they had been writing for years op-eds and organizing and petitions and trying to get the university to make cha- changes on campus to address their needs. And then they found out that Charles Murray was going to be invited and was going to get this kind of prestigious talk. And Charles Murray is somebody who would be, you know, a nobody except that he has been Coke-funded um, through the Manhattan Institute and through his early writing of The Bell Curve. He got $100,000 a year to write that book from, I forget if it was the Manhattan or one of these folks of, of funded. And then he's been at, at the American Enterprise Institute at, uh, ever since. And then on top of that, there was the American Enterprise Institute creates campus chapters to kind of bring students into the right-wing think tank world. And it was the American Enterprise Institute student group that actually brought Charles Murray to campus and actually paid, and it was the American Enterprise Institute that paid for his speaking fee on campus, right? And so basically the students were, if you watch the video of them protesting Charles Murray, it's both a protest of Charles Murray, but it's also a protest about the way that they've been treated at, at school and the way that this particular, the fact that Charles Murray was on campus is indicative of a whole series of campus-wide um, uh examples of racism that the students think should, uh, I need to be addressed, right? Um, and so on the one hand, like, I'm, I'm still entirely ambivalent. Like, I'm not sure if the students should have shut down Murray or not. Um, and I think that, um, you know, I, I think reasonable people can disagree on exactly that question, right? But I think that, you know, that is a point that is you know, the history of higher education and the history of debates about free speech is exactly that question. But what it's not, it's not a story of this cut and dry victim that has been the target of this liberal outrage, right? And, and that, that story has been manufactured by American Enterprise Institute that funds Charles Murray, by the professors at, at, on campus that were responsible for bringing in all of the other lines of Coke mo- um, um, money into that campus. And so there's a way in which um, um, if you say, you know, X speaker is only here because they're funded by American Enterprise or Hudson or whoever, right? I think that that's an important part of the story is what are the motivations between the student groups? You know, the, a lot of these student protests or these, uh, these, these kind of provocative speakers that come to campus, we demonstrate in the book, their entire careers are paid for by dark money, coke mo- uh, money, a libertarian money. And then the student groups that bring them to campus precisely because they are so provocative are also paid, paid for. 
So you can have five or six students on campus that have a, a line to uh, Americans for Liberty or young, or, or, or young Americans for Freedom. They have a private spigot of cash that they can use to bring provocative speakers to, ca- to campus. That's very, very different from a small student group or student protesters um, advocating for free speech on, on their campus. They have to do the organizing. They have to do the work in order to kind of make that um, event or uh, uh, happen, right? And you're also um, saying we're hearing about these things, but it also, you know, the, the protests are for more than an individual speaker coming to campus. They're protests about ongoing campus issues or issues of the campus. And what you're describing is there were students were had other issues with the university regarding discrimination or how they were treated. And this particular speaker came and it sort of becomes a flashpoint where the, you know, the media can say this was a protest against a certain speaker. And you're saying it was as much a protest against how groups of students felt, how they were being treated generally on the campus, not just about having one speaker come and talk. Yeah. And, and if you read the, um, the reports of the reporters who went and interviewed the student activists, like they were very, they, they were work they were, they were making, they were trying to change their campus culture. Right. And they saw the Charles Murray talk as the example of, of the things that needed to change on campus. And, and, you know, th- that was free speech too. What they were trying to do in protesting Charles Murray, they were protesting their school. That's another form of free speech. But what um, the free speech uh, laws that get passed in states that are also funded by ALEC and and other Koch or organizations are trying to criminalize that kind of speech and basically say you have to allow everybody to speak, right, regardless of how racist they are, regardless of how uh, corrupt they are, uh, regardless of how um, they're only there to provoke, right? You know, a lot of these people, the Milo Yiannopoulos, have nothing to contribute to a college campus. They're just simply there to provoke. Yeah, but that's a judgment of somebody about something. We're talking with um, uh, uh, Ralph Wilson and Isaac Comola today uh, with about their new book, Free Speech, the Manufactured Manufacturing a Campus Culture War, which is, I think, a topic that people don't hear. What they hear about is examples of of liberal or left-wing shutting down speakers they disagree with. The thing that disturbs me a little bit is that the, the, you know, the speakers who, bad speakers speaking for bad stuff, like talking, coming to campus and talking about how wonderful the Vietnam War is and how everybody should join up and we, you know, and are you in ROTC or not and a campus uh, crack down on these campus hippies and liberals. Everybody sees another group person idea as being very wrong. And um, Charles Murphy, is, as far as I know, is I just know his bell curve book, which is a very uh, provocative thing, which suggests that different ethnic groups or races, I don't even know how he frames it, uh, don't remember, it's been too long, have different IQs. Right. And so that's a very, very provocative idea. It's been pretty much discredited for now for what, since my day back in the 60s or 70s. I mean, bad but, ideas never go away. <laughs> yeah. Bad ideas never go away. Zombie ideas, as, as, uh, as um, some people call them. So you're not going to like the ideas that some of these people bring. And, they're, you know, but the question is whether you can suppress them. Now, frankly, as somebody been around a long time on this, 
the right wing always has more money than the left. They always had more ability. They always have more support. They always had uh, the establishment when I was young on their side, leaning toward them. And we didn't try to shut them down from saying what they thought, even if we thought what they thought was like that segregation is a good thing. I mean, I was in I was in sit-ins. People do not. You, there are lots of people you just really disagree with strongly. The question is whether they have free speech just like you have. And so that's that's one of the thing I want to raise with with you with you folks. And um, I guess we'll go to Ralph first, and then and then go back to Isaac. Yeah, well, I, I think that is a question that's uh, essentially being pushed to the front. And I guess the, the trouble is is that there's um, there's some premises loaded in the question, <clears throat> and especially in terms of uh, you know having this. Um, be the point of inquiry on campuses. So one important thing is that, you know, um, campuses are not just and shouldn't just be sort of governed by the principles of free speech. You know, there's also principles of academic freedom at play. And, you know, campuses are, are places that produce knowledge. And this is a, this is a process that's, um, that's regulated and self, self-governed by you know, peer review by by just the, the institution of the academy itself. And so to say that campuses are supposed to just be open to all ideas, for example, um, is a is a overly simplified model of something that the, the academy is, you know, is very complex. Um, but it's also, you know, th- it's also seen very directly, strategically as a, as a backdoor onto these campuses. So there's a document that was written um by uh, eventual Supreme Court Justice Lewis Powell that was very influential in guiding the corporate right um, in 1974, I believe. And he specifically said, you know, we need to get more pro-capitalist, pro-business speakers on campuses. We're losing the culture war. And that, you know, activism in the 60s on campuses was scaring these business people. They thought that Capitalism was going to fall out of favor, you know, and that they were going to be harmed by that. And so Lewis Powell says we have to get more pro-business speakers on campus. One way that we can do that is by accusing campuses of being closed off to a diversity of ideas. They will be averse to this. They, they will not like this charge. Um, and that is precisely on an industrial scale what is what is happening here. And and so you know the weaponization of free speech is something that that we kind of detail in the book over the decades is something that's been strategically executed um, in so many ways. You know, we have Citizens United. That was a weaponization of free speech. Um, the recent Janus Supreme Court ruling attacking the labor unions used an argument of weaponized free speech, the same, the same argument used in, in Citizens United, money is speech, uh, et cetera. And so, you know, one of the important things that, that we're trying to sort of shift the frame away from is this just being a question purely of free speech, um, because there's all these other hidden parts. As you know, as uh, as Isaac pointed out, these laws penalize, criminalize um, uh, what would otherwise be protected speech. So, you know, even if it, even if you wanted to engage the question purely of free speech, um, these laws that are being passed as a result of this question. Uh, penalized free speech, and, and so it's not a straightforward 
question of more speech or less speech. What are some of the factors uh, that that um, that you would argue that we should be aware of? Because sitting out away from the universities, we uh, we just hear of the conflicts in the distance, and I think most of us kind of know that the media is just a little in an ambiguous situation. Um, what are the things that we need to know that changes this from a, just a free speech debate on campus to what's actually happening? A day-to-day, I suppose, or, or year-to-year. Sure, I'll take a crack at this. I think um, something that's really helpful to understand is that there are a number of right-wing, corporate, libertarian-funded student groups on campus. Um, so there's four groups in particular that we focus on um, in, in the book. Stu- Students for Liberty, which was funded in 2008 at a Koch Summer Fellows Program, and it operates internationally and has chapters around the world that brings in students um, and trains them in, like, corporate libertarian ideology um, and places them. It's part of the talent pipe of pipeline, bringing in students into the think tank and the, po- the policy world. The Young Americans for Liberty was um, started as students for Rand Paul, and so it has that ultra um, a libertarian bent and has since been um, funded by Koch's and Donor Trust Donor Capital Fund, which is called the, the ATM of the, of, of the conservative um, mo- uh, movement. Um, and there's Students for Liberty, which is a William F. Buckley that started in the 1960s um, and has since also been funded by Koch, DeVos, uh, a, a, a Donor Capital Trust, Donor Capital Fund. And then there's Turning Points, with, uh, which is like the young hip Super culture war, Charlie Kirk, um, yeah. which is actually uh, headquartered here in, in Arizona in Phoenix. <laughs> That's right. Yeah, and is funded by uh, the libertarian um, former Illinois gov- uh, Governor Bruce Rauner and the De- and the DeVos fa- uh, family. They and they run they run the Professor Watch List, which they basically um, identifies like a McCarthyite list where they identify student uh, fa- faculty who talk too much about race or are critical of the United States. Not not pro um, America enough. You know, they might teach the 1619 project or something like that. Um, and 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 so there's these four groups that all look like they're different groups, right? But they 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 oftentimes multiple chapters exist on the same campus. They all have a kind of a, a, a different flavor. Some are kind of like button down a legacy li- libertarians. Some are kind of more like. Um, ed, uh, edgy, kind of in-your-face, meme-based, like Turning Points USA, right? And then they're all, you know, they're all funded by the, by the same folks and, um, and overlapping circles. And oftentimes students will be part of multiple groups, right? So you can actually have a small number of students, five or six students, um, that are part of multiple groups that can then bring in these controversial speakers on campus, right? So what looks like this big popular uprising and this big popular voice um, is, is, is actually just kind of an astroturf small student group. So I saw this on my campus, right, where the, the Students for Liberty group, um, you know, ha- had a couple, stu- a couple students that were able to bring in a whole, like, series of, of speakers and, you know, gave students access to the right wing um, uh, political a- um, operation. Um, and then you had other student groups that were trying to push back against that that had to or- organize hundreds of people to come out for a march and a rally in order to get their ideas across. Right. Um, so 
you have this kind of asymmetry. And then because there's four groups, it looks like there's a lot more support than there actually is. So let's and talk about the asymmetry, the fact that on the one hand, you have sort of pretty much spontaneous student groups or long-term uh, political groups. Uh, and on the other hand, you have corporate-backed and funded um, groups. And once you get a lot of corporate funding, uh, Karen, uh, on one side of an issue, do you really even end up having free speech because they have the money and the power to dominate everything? Uh, and is that what you're sort of suggesting? Is it one of the problems on campus? Or is it, I mean, we see that in the larger society, certainly. Absolutely. Yeah. And, part, and part of the book that we're trying to say is, you know, um, yeah, I mean, the question of, of speech on campus is difficult, but part of that story is why is it that a handful of people, like it was a handful of people as students at Berkeley that brought in Milo Yiannopoulos, right? And all of a sudden they're driving national stories about free speech on campus, right? And then you zoom up and this whole narrative about like this crazy left-wing um, uh, um, uh, um, foment, you know, like crazy students and professors that are doing all this wacky stuff on college campuses is, is similarly manufactured, right? They're driving the narrative. The same it, with the stuff of, about um, critical race theory, right? It, it, it sounds in some way, I know for some of the people listening, we've seen that uh, not outside of the university area, but when it comes to environmental groups, environmental groups that pop up with beautiful names like Save the Trees, and they turned out to be funded by the timber industry or the mining industry. Yep. But it's yeah, that's something that's been going on in that world. I know a lot of our listeners are probably, and it's sort of analogous to that same sort of an idea. It sounds like it, an uprising of residents of one area with one issue, but it really isn't. It's funded on a national basis by someone who's who's getting some money out of it at the, at the end of the line. Yeah. And that's a great example. The the environmental uh, is a great example because the, the, what's going on on college campuses is exactly what's gone, gone on with climate denial, right? Where the Heartland Institute and other Coke think tanks fund the quote other side of the story, right? These scientists say cl climate change is happening. Well, these scientists say it's not, right? And then they they make the free speech argument, and you got to listen to both sides of the argument, right? Um, and that's exactly what, what's happening here is free speech is being used on college campuses to justify a both-siderism where the other side is largely manufactured by these kinds of astroturf student groups. Yeah, if I could add on to that, um, you know, in the book, really one of the things I think that is uh, sort of really notable is that, you know, we look at this network that's essentially carrying out this um, this, this culture war, this free speech crisis, um, and, we, you know, we see the exact same groups, um, the exact same network, also responsible for spreading climate change denial, for example, as, uh, as Isaac mentioned. But also, these are the same networks and groups that were pushing tobacco misinformation uh, the decade before. And, you know, there's, there's documentation of their strategies at the time. Um, the tobacco uh, industry lawsuits have pr produced a tremendous amount of documentation that show that these groups specifically employ the strategy of using multiple front groups to kind of hijack the, the discourse. Um, you know, if they control group A and group B uh, and they have enough influence, then they can make the discourse which of our groups is correct, our group A or our group B. So they're able to just to, to hijack the entirety of the discourse to influence both sides of the discourse. And we've seen that with these campus free 
speech laws. There's laws that are based on several pieces of model legislation, but all of it created by the same network. So in some states, you know, the, the, the debate becomes which Coke network bill is, is worse um, and which one should we settle for. Um, but the fact that it's a, it's a pattern of uh, this kind of intentional misinformation in order to secure political objectives was super clear in the tobacco misinformation, super clear in climate change denial, and the fact that these are the exact same people using the exact same tactics, um, but just with a different theme this time, uh, is, is really alarming when you kind of are able to zoom out a little bit. And, and it's also the reason why, you know, you mentioned these zombie ideas, these ideas that won't die. Well, in universities, there are, there's a process for killing ideas. If, if ideas don't hold up, then they're supposed to, you know, they, they essentially uh, retire from, from the discourse. But when you have these outside groups essentially paying money to keep these ideas alive, um, it, it goes against the proper function and the role, you know, role of uh, uh, free inquiry in the academy. Um, and it, it essentially in, instills this problematic model of a marketplace of ideas where, you know, as long as an idea has one proponent left standing, it's still in the mix. Um, and so these corporate donors are able to just fund, you know, a thousand soapboxes and uh, essentially subsidize, skew this marketplace of ideas and keep their favorite ideas alive, and that's whether or not they're true. goes back with something we used to talk about the, of the, you know, the media had that equal time idea that you know, mm-hmm. both sides should get equal equal time when, when you said one idea is, you know, there's 10 people who believe in one idea and a thousand people who say that, you know, the 10 people are incorrect, but the 10 people deserve the same airtime. We see that all the time on, on issues. I'm on a local school board here. We see some of these things have trickled down even to high schools. The Koch brothers were actually funding high school classes. They seem to have gone away. I'm not sure where that is now. They, there was one in Tucson. It, uh, about economic philosophy or something like that, and the after a year, the Tucson school board canceled the class after out you know people brought it to their attention. They talked about the fact that this was not really a, you know a class that sounded like it was neutral but was not. And I don't know if those if those if those similar high school classes are still around and being taught yeah, anymore. Actually, That's, that was several years sorry, ago. I can, yeah. I can speak directly to that. The Cokes Off Campus group was doing great work. Um, exposed. That and, and yeah. recently, that they, they found that the, the high school course was discontinued in Tucson. But by that time, it had spread to over a hundred high schools across the country and in and in Mexico. Mm-hmm. Um, so these ideas are spreading rapidly with a lot of money behind them. So there's the ideas there's a, there's that a great people example have. Too, like Co- like Cokes on campus was a bunch of very very smart and committed activists spending a ton of time to get that curriculum out of Tucson, right? Mm-hmm. And then they're going up against this, ju- this juggernaut that's well-funded, integrated network that's able to place it all around the world. And so, again, you have this, this issue of disproportionate, where speech is, is, is disproportionate. I guess what I see is, is the issues that concerns me, or what I see is corporate money on one side pushing certain ideas and citizens on the other side. I mean, I know that the people who run corporations are also citizens, but their influence is magnified by their wealth to an extreme degree. Um, we normally think about it in, in campaign contributions and these uh, all these uh, uh, different kinds of foundations and stuff. 
which hide the money and transfer the money problem we have here in Arizona. And we don't really think about the intellectual spread of, of these ideas in order to keep a base for them, I guess, out in the world once you guys graduate, you know, or, or students graduate, they'll have been indoctrinated to some extent in, in uh, uh, libertarian philosophy. Which, you know, honestly, I mean, I, I had a lot of respect for libertarians back in my day. They really did believe what they believed, and they really were independent, and they weren't funded by anybody in the early days. And um, But their whole ideology was to strengthen the power of the wealthy. And, of course, that turned out to be a very popular with corporate <laughs> corporations and corporate ideologues, I guess is the, is the word. So – what can you do about this besides you written a book exposing the extent of it, which is fairly shocking if you read the book, folks? Uh, what else could be done? Um, either one of you guys. Uh, Isaac, you want to jump in? Sure. Here? I mean, I think that for us, it's to the first part is to understand the, the degree to which this is an integrated network and that the universities play a central role. Right. So going back to the structure of social change that was designed as kind of their underlying strategy, they see universities as generating the ideas, the raw material, they call it, that then gets refined into policies at the think tank level. Right. So, and then that then gets turned into proposals and legislation that then gets passed. So we exactly tend to look at like who's funding who in, in what campaign. And when David Koch lost in the 1980, we got 2% of the libertarian vote in 1980, they realized that just the electoral end is not enough to have the kinds of revolutionary transporta- uh, tra- transformation that they are looking for. Um, and that you needed to kind of change the way that society thinks from top to bottom. And universities were absolutely key in that um, um, of strategy. So in terms of what is to be done, I think that kind of, Paying attention to universities um, and 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 understanding the 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 role that they play, and then do, doing what we can to to shed light and then to to disassemble um, uh, of this network because I think the network works as long as people don't see that these think tanks and academic centers and media outlets and 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 legislation mills. Um, and individual politicians are all networked together, right? As soon as you expose those networks, then it becomes more expensive. And, and there has been examples of where, where professors and students have protested on college campuses. It became too expensive for the centers to stay there and they've left, right? Um, so I think that we need to do the work to understand the networks and then to push back against them. Other thoughts, gentlemen? Um, yeah, I, I, would, I would just like to, um, to add on to Isaac's call to organize there. I know in Arizona, there's, again, I'll mention them again, a wonderful group called Cokes Off Campus, um, and they're doing excellent work uh, agitating around the Koch Center at the University of Arizona. Um, and, you know, essentially, I think I think the big takeaway here is, you know, if, if you're a conservative, if you're a libertarian, you know, it, it's important to... Um, because understand the, the truer intent behind what might, you know, something that, that looks like it might be touting your ideology, but, but in fact is taking advantage of your ideals. Um, and, you know, we've, there's plenty of recordings and documents that we've discussed in the book where, 
uh, you know, there's professors on campus who are specifically taking advantage of students who, you know, feel like they don't fit in or, you know, are from rural Alabama, uh, for example. And this is a very, um, uh, you know, ill-intentioned um, uh, network of, of people who are, you know, essentially um, looking to looking to manipulate uh, the situation and, and people's values. Um, but it's also important to, if you're on the, the left um, to, to kind of uh, be cautious in the knee-jerk reaction to this free speech crisis, you know, given, given the, the place that free speech is held um, in the leftist, progressive, and libertarian movements, it, it, it was, it's basically the plan is to divide and conquer. And the free speech issue has been incredibly divisive on the left because it's such a deeply held value. Um, and so, you know, if you find yourself sort of feeling polarized around this issue, um, I guess my advice would, would be to take a breath and try to look at the intent of what's being, uh, of what's being done in front of you or in your name. Yeah, it's certainly a, a hot issue, and you're right. For many of us on the left, free speech is like a, a very important value. But frankly, all through the 60s and 70s and the struggles against Vietnam and stuff, there were people on the left who didn't really believe in free speech. And, um, you know, there's always somebody. But I... I guess what I see is the difference, and I repeat it again, is this difference between corporate speech, which these groups kind of become, and citizen speech. Yeah. Is, is that a fair, is that, is that overdoing it as a distinction, uh, Isaac? No, no I, I think that's right, because when, when they say the marketplace of ideas, what they mean is a libertarian marketplace, right? where anybody can say anything, where speech is money and corporations are people, right? Um, and so what free speech absolutism has become is um, just assuming all of the marketplace assumptions about what a marketplace is from libertarianism, right? Um, and I think that, that, that part of the, 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 the complexity of free speech is that we either need a new metaphor than marketplace of ideas, or we need a new understanding of what a marketplace is, right? One that has a little bit of safeguards, that has that, that empowers people who are disempowered to speak. And you notice on campus that many of the things that free speech is used, is weaponized against, are efforts that add inclusion and diversity yeah. and equity, right? Yeah. So we, students of color who are excluded, um, you know, these, these free speech arguments go against, are used to, to, to take down the programs that... Uh, that are trying to make well we've run out of time <laughs> uh, we've been talking today about a book called free speech the manufacturer of campus culture wars with ralph wilson and isaac komala uh it's available on as a kindle it's available on amazon certainly in like hardcover i think in, and, and certainly in soft cover and uh yeah you can check it out and there's a lot of other booksellers small and independent we want to thank the Democrats of the Red Rocks for supporting the show, for the Yavapai County Democratic Party, for El Portal Restaurant, and for all you other folks who contribute to this program. We do have to pay for all our airtime, so contributions are very much appreciated. Yes, Visit our website. There's a little button you can yeah. press there. Add us to the end, your end-of-the-year donation list, please. Yeah. <laughs>
So uh, all this show and all the other show, and we have a bunch on the Koch brothers, are available on podcasts on our website. Um, iTunes and these other uh, similar groups contain a lot of our podcasts, but not all of them. But we go back 10 years. And so if you wanted to see like the show sounded like when we were a 15-minute show, you can do so. Thank you for being with us, folks. Hopefully you'll turn in next week. We've got a really good program for you on summing up the end of the year in politics. Listening to Democratic Perspective, brought to you by the Verde Valley Independent Democrats, a weekly talk show focusing on the political issues facing the Verde Valley, Sedona, Northern Arizona, and our nation at large. Catch us every Monday morning after the 8 a.m. news, right here on AM 780 KAZM. It's beautiful out there, folks. Have a great day.